Today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus entered triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem to bring about his victory, the victory, through his holy life, his atoning death, his resurrection. That's what we'll celebrate next week is the resurrection. And let me, let me remind you, I, I'm so happy like many of you are that, that things are getting back to normal and there's opportunities to be out and about and, and what a blessing that is. I, I'm so happy for many uh, of, of the pastors I keep up with, one in particular who this morning, their congregation is having their first worship service in over a year. We've been so blessed here to have had multiple services, multiple venues, multiple campuses, and God has, has been so good to us. Others have, have struggled under very difficult circumstances politically that have kept them from being able to worship, but today many are, and we praise God for that. And this week marks Holy Week. This was the last week of Jesus' life, and we're going to be uh, sending out things on social media this week. Be on the lookout for those to help prompt us to be mindful, to worship God, and to, to celebrate Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. On this day, on this Palm Sunday, there's so many things that are happening that, that it, it's, it's nearly impossible to really bring them all into focus. We're going to focus on the, on the fact that Jesus is king today. But, but as king, uh, what we see in this day is it points to the, the promise-keeping power of God. The text we're going to look at today is 500 years. It's 500 years before the day we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday came about. And, and what, what this day points to is, is the fact that our God is so powerful that he can make happen what was promised hundreds, even thousands of years before it ever came to be. It reminds us that Jesus alone is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one that was foretold who is coming to redeem all who would believe. It affirms the peace and hope that Jesus has brought to our world as king. Remember, we don't have peace because it was, it was mediated, because it was, it was something that was worked out. No, we have peace because Jesus has crushed the head of Satan, because he has defeated sin and death. And so our peace comes because of the victory that has been won. And this Palm Sunday, it celebrates the coming of our king into the arena to defeat the, the enemy that has stalked and, and has confined us by, in, in sin and by powers of darkness. The light has come. And so we're inspired. This day inspires us to be brave, to be brave like Jesus who came humbly to bring life and victory over sin and death as king. Our text today, yes, it, it, it teaches us. It teaches us why we can believe in Jesus and honor him as king. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, let's now go to the book of Zechariah. The best way to get there is to go to the New Testament. Go to Matthew and then hang a left. Go back to the Old Testament. You'll go past Malachi and then you'll hit Zechariah. Zechariah has 14 chapters. It's a, it's a little bit easier to find in the Old Testament because it's towards the end. We're going to go to chapter 9. We're in Zechariah chapter 9, and we're going to look particularly at verse 9. 
So let's all stand together in honor of God's word and let's read this powerful prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen? Amen. If you would be seated and pray now for the preaching of God's word. Our world is filled with darkness, with lies. But God, in his grace, he's given us a certain truth. The Bible is a certain truth. And, and this scripture, it, it, it reveals that Jesus, Jesus is the king of heaven and earth and has won the victory over sin and death to save us, his people. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God and about what he has done and is doing in the world to bring himself glory in saving sinners and making them saints and members of, of his heaven, citizens of heaven. The Bible is a single story then. It's, it's not a collection of sayings or ideas. The Bible is a single story in four parts. Let's say these four parts out loud together. They are creation, and most of the Bible is about the rescue. Most of the Bible. So you've got creation in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's spoken to in the Psalms and, and, and other places very, very briefly. The fall is spoken to, of course, in, in chapter 3, and, and of course the implications of the fall uh, are carried on throughout, throughout the entirety of the scriptures. But the rescue, that section of the rescue, that is primarily uh, what the Bible is composed of. And, and there's two parts to the rescue, okay? I want, and I want you to really get this today. I don't, I don't talk about this, this that much, but I do this time of year in particular. And so I always want to emphasize it for you so that it really gets locked into your head. When, you're, when we talk about the rescue in, in, in Scripture, there's two parts to really to be mindful of. First of all, there's a part of the promise made. As it pertains to the rescue of God, the, the promise was made by God how the rescue was going to happen, what would make it possible for us to be rescued from sin. And then there is the promise kept. So in the Old Testament, up to John, which is, is in the New Testament, John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the last of the prophets. And so he promised that Messiah was coming. He pointed to the coming of Jesus, along with all of the Old Testament prophets and Moses, all speaking to this, this one who is going to come and to rescue God's people. And, and what we see in the New Testament, of course, is the promise kept. Now, after his resurrection, Jesus talked about the fact that, that Moses and all the prophets up to John spoke of his coming. There were these two men walking to Emmaus, and in Luke 24, 25, we read, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus taught the importance of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus. All the prophets up to John the, the Baptist, the last of the prophets, point to Jesus. 
and, and the fact that he was coming. And now what we celebrate is the fact that Jesus has come and that the promise has been kept. Jesus has, has, he has fulfilled all the prophecies. And our text today is one of the real important prophecies about the coming of Jesus. And it gives us assurance of, of our faith, of the fact of who Jesus is, of what he's done. What has he done? He's come and he's lived a holy life. He's, he's died an atoning death. And he's brought victory over death through his resurrection on the third day. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one who has given victory. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on, a th on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see how the New Testament continues to point back to the Old Testament and speaks to those as the scriptures, as the word of God. It's exactly what Jesus said. All the scriptures speak to me. All the scriptures point to Jesus. And so when we read the Old Testament, we need to be looking for two things all the time. When you're reading the Old Testament, always be on the lookout for the promise of Jesus. Jesus is the hero. He's the, he's the main character of the Bible. We need to, and on every page, we need to be looking for Jesus, for signs of Jesus, especially in the Old Testament. I appreciate what uh, Charles Spurgeon said on the matter. So from every text in scripture, there is a road toward the great metropolis, Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? In the Old Testament, there's always a road to Christ. There, there is a step that is pointing to him. There is a director, it's a pointing, it's saying, go here, this is Jesus, this is what we're promising. At the same time, as you're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, you have to be responsible to the text itself in terms of the primary recipients. So be mindful of the original recipients, how that scripture was speaking to them in their day, in, in what they were seeing and what they were going through. That word from God through that prophet was given to them for a purpose. Not only does it speak to the coming of Jesus, but also speaks to what was happening in their day. And by understanding the context of the scripture, we can understand the truth of, of what the scripture teaches. Our text today was written by the prophet Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was a priest, and he was a member of a, of a, of a prominent family. And he was one of the first who came back. If you'll remember, he was, uh, there was the the gift of Cyrus, having been moved by God, we believe by the teaching of Daniel, who showed him in, in, in Isaiah 44, 28, that God had spoken of him before his birth, that he would release the, the, the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Zechariah was a part of that original group. We've been studying Nehemiah. So I want you to think about it in this terms. Zechariah came back from Babylon almost 100 years, just over 100 years before Nehemiah. So that gives you a sense of the context of who this man is and kind of the world he was in. Now with the, with the prophet Haggai, Haggai is, a, is another prophet, minor prophet as we call them, uh, and found, found chronologically in your Bible right before Zechariah. They were sent by God to challenge the people to build the temple because here's what happened. 
When the Israelites, when the, when, the, when the people of God got back to Jerusalem, they got so wrapped up and busy in building their own houses and their own businesses and pursuing their own pleasures and hobbies that they kept putting God on the back burner. They kept putting the temple and building the temple on the back burner. And so God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to challenge them to get on with doing the work of God. And so the first eight chapters of Zechariah speak to that. Chapters 9 through 14, they they were written a a while after the temple was built, but speak to a a very important challenge. The, The people, the people, they built the temple, they'd done what God told them to, but life wasn't easy. And there were some who were thinking, is God really with us? And, and, and is God really going to accomplish all that he promised? And so Zechariah receives the word from God. And that's what we read in chapters 9 through 14, is this encouragement. It's, it's this renewed promise. God has not forgotten you. God's plan is going to be accomplished. And here's what's going to happen as God is accomplishing his promise. In this verse we're studying today, it's written to encourage, it was, was written to encourage them. It's, it's now an encouragement to us that God keep his, keeps his promises, that God knows what he's doing, that God has a plan. That, that hundreds of years and, and, and all kinds of political movements and all kinds of enemies of darkness cannot stop God. And so be encouraged today. Our king has come. Jesus is king. The salvation he brings is eternal. And, and what he came to defeat was just not some political enemy. What Jesus came to defeat was an eternal darkness, an eternal being, an, an eternal enslavement. That, that has come about because of sin. Sin, th- this victory, this victory is in Christ alone. And our text points to Jesus. He came as promised. He's the king who, who brings with him what we need for life. And that's what I want you to take note of today. Uh, Jesus is coming. When he came, he brought everything we needed for life, for the life that he gives to all who repent and believe. So take note of these three things that Jesus comes with. First of all, Jesus is a king who comes with a joy deeper than the world's grief. He comes with a a joy. It's a joy that is deeper than the world's grief. We're going to have grief. We're going to have sorrow. But it's so shallow compared to the depth of the joy that Jesus brings, that Jesus has for us who believe. It says in the first part of verse 9, go back to your text in verse 9 and look what he says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. God gives joy. Last week we were, we were covering a lot of, of scripture and, and had we had time, I would have taken more time to develop Nehemiah chapter, Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 10. I put it on the screen for you this morning. Then he said to them, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Friends, because of who God is, because of what he's done and what he's doing, we can always rejoice. The people in Nehemiah's day, they grieved over their sin and and their grief was appropriate. As they were listening to Ezra read the law and the priests explain the law, they were grieved because they had indeed sinned. But for those of us today who have repented and believed the gospel, we can rejoice. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
There's a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Worldly grief produces death. Godly grief leads us to repentance. And there is joy in that. There is joy in the Lord. The joy of the Lord comes from the gospel. Joy doesn't come from from you taking, you know, the, the, the time to just really build yourself up and say, okay, today, I don't care what happens, I'm going to put a smile on my face. And I know you, our mamas all told us, put a smile on your face. That's not what God says. God says, let there be a joy in your heart. Let there be a joy in your heart because of who God is, because of what God has done. And that can only happen if you've experienced. Not if you know. <coughs> Excuse me. I, I want to make sure that you understand this. It's not enough to know the information about the gospel you got to know the information but that's not enough you have to experience the gospel and the only way you can experience the gospel is to truly turn your life over to the risen Christ to repent of self-sufficiency to say I'm not going to trust in myself anymore because what will produce is sin and brokenness what God has come to bring is wholeness and harmony And that only happens when we believe the gospel, when we believe what Jesus has done. Friends, it's not enough to understand it. I know some of you have been raised in church. Some of you children, you're here and you've heard this. And I've noticed uh, over the years, there are times when I'll be teaching the gospel. I'll see a glazed look come over the congregation. I'll I'll see a a just kind of a disinterested spirit because because there's this, oh, I know this. He says this all the time. He, He always talks about, yes, Jesus died. He was raised on the third day. What else you got? Friends, there is nothing more greater than that news. And you may know that information, but if you've not experienced it, it will not give you joy. Knowing who Jesus is and what he's done and have received that, having received that, now, now there's rejoicing. You know, Paul told the church at Philippi in 16 different ways to have joy and to rejoice. He, he said in uh, Philippians 4:4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Zechariah told the people of Jerusalem to rejoice. And the, and the people in Zechariah's day, they, they had various kinds of grief. Uh, three things that I would take note of is, first of all, there was the grief of loss. They got back to Jerusalem, and what they realized was that they were a nation that had lost its way. And they were a people who no longer had prestige. Jerusalem was a forgotten city. It was on the out, outskirts of the Babylonian Empire. It didn't matter anymore. And, and there was grief in the loss of all that God had done and in their identity. There was the grief of disappointment. See, the temple that they built, it was not near the size of Solomon's temple. It was not nearly as cool as Solomon's temple. It, it was very makeshift. There, there wasn't a lot of bells and whistles on this thing. And so they, they felt like they'd failed. There, there was a disappointment because they felt like they hadn't lived up to to what they should have been as the returning people. And there was the grief of being overwhelmed because having built the temple, it put a target on their backs. People used to ignore them, but now that there's this temple, now that they're worshiping God, now the devil's mad and the devil's interested in what is happening and the devil's coming against them. And so they have this sense of being overwhelmed by enemies. And so Zechariah told them, take your eyes off your circumstances and put your eyes on the king, the king who is coming. A couple of weeks ago, I told you the story of 
Helen H. Limmel. She was the poor, blind, abandoned woman who wrote that wonderful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Remember what she wrote. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Sing this with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off the world. Get your eyes on the king. Zechariah told the people of his day, Get your eyes on the king. Your king is coming. Rejoice greatly. He told them of the promise made. We know the promise kept. Christ has come. Get your eyes on Jesus. Jesus brings a joy deeper than the world's grief. And the main reason we can rejoice is because of what Jesus gives. Take note of the second thing. Jesus is the king who comes with a mercy stronger than the world's sin. A mercy stronger than the world's sin. The middle part of verse 9. <coughs> Excuse me. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Friends, Jesus Christ is our only hope. Without his mercy, we cannot be saved. Sin is serious. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But God's mercy is greater than sin. The verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mercy from God, it is experienced through Christ alone. The Bible is very clear on this, that salvation is only possible through Jesus. Let me give you four of my favorite texts that, that speak to this reality. The first one is John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And then John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The truth of the uniqueness of Christ is bothersome to a lot of people in the world, and it's bothersome because a lot of people in the world want to say something very foolish. They want to say that all religions are basically the same and that all religions lead to heaven. And that is not what Jesus taught. That is nonsense. I have always appreciated what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and, and, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Our text explains why it is salvation is found in Christ alone. Look at this. Behold, you're coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Look at that. Righteous. I underlined that in my Bible. Righteous. See, because Jesus is righteous, that is holy. His death can atone for our sin. An unrighteous sacrifice has no value. Makes me think of a, a mom and dad who were struggling financially. And they didn't know how they were going to get through the month. There was more month than money. And so they were talking about this, and they had no idea that their little boy was listening. And he spoke up. He said, Mom and Dad, I got this. I got this. And he ran back to his room, and he came back. He said, I won this from Grandma last night. They'd been playing Monopoly. And, and he brought all of it, and Mom and Dad just smiled. They knew his heart. And they said, thank you, and went away, and they put the money away. Why? Because it had no value. It doesn't matter how much your heart believes something. If it's not true, it has no value. It doesn't matter how much you believe in something. If it's a lie, it can't change anything. What, what Christ is able to do for us in, in his death has eternal value because he is holy God. His death has value because of who he is. Only Jesus is righteous. Only his blood is the pure sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, look at that, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus, the righteous one, only his blood, which is holy, has the power to atone, to redeem. And notice, behold, your king is coming to you. Having salvation is he. Jesus is the only provision for salvation. And he has salvation in himself. In order to gain that salvation, we must receive God's mercy. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1, Paul given his testimony. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But look at this, look at verse 16. But I received mercy. It's mercy that saves, not our works. It's mercy. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The, the Apostle Paul, like all who have been saved, trusted in the mercy of God. Mercy saves us from sin. The mercy of Jesus is greater than all our sin. Third thing to take note of. Jesus is the king who comes with a humility more fearless than the world's pride. More fearless. 
The humility of Jesus is fearless. Look at the last part of verse 9. Look how he came. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus humbled himself by becoming one of us. Having been made in, in human form, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, having, having defeated our, our, our enemies, sin and death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue on heaven and on earth and under the earth confess that he is the Lord. He is the Savior. And he came humbly. Philippians 2.5, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When Jesus came to Jerusalem for the, fast, for the last time to win the victory over sin and death, he entered the town on a donkey. Notice how he did not enter. He didn't enter on a war horse. Now, if you go back and if you'll read Revelation, when Jesus comes again, he's coming on a war horse. He's coming armed with a sword for judgment. But that day he came to bring salvation. He came on a donkey and he didn't go to the palace to take out a political leader. He went to the temple. He went to do his father's work. Jesus did exactly what the prophecy said he would do. Jesus entered on a donkey and he went to the temple and he was fearless. H.D.M. Spence said, our blessed Lord himself by taking his abnormal actions on Palm Sunday plainly assumed the part of the predicted king and meant the people to recognize him as the promised Messiah. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing on Palm Sunday. He knew the prophecy that was being fulfilled that day. He knew he was fulfilling our text. And he came humbly. The, the world is filled with, with people who are filled with fear and pride. And fear and pride, I've learned, are, are very closely connected. I remember when I was young playing sports, there was a, a young man who was very talented. I didn't like him. And I didn't like him because he was always bragging about how great he was. And he was great, but he was always bragging about it. And he was always talking about how great he was. And I, I took him aside once and I said, man, you got to quit talking about yourself. This is a team. And, and that conversation did not go well. So I went and talked to my coach about it. And I'll never forget this. He said, Pettis, son, you have to understand something. When he looks at you and the other guys, he sees a lot of things he doesn't have. He didn't have a dad. He doesn't do well in school. He doesn't have friends. People don't like him. And he knows that. So every time he can, he's going to point to what is great about him. But what you have to understand, what, what is revealed as pride actually comes from fear. He's afraid that you guys will see him as he sees himself. See, and that's what proud people do is they're scared. And so they keep pointing to something that they can do. Don't look at the real me. Look at this thing over here. 
Friends, it takes courage, a fearlessness to be humble. See, to be humble is to be vulnerable. It's to say, here's who I really am. To To be humble is to be generous. It's to say, you know what? You can take advantage of me. I'll give. I'll give. It's to be confident. It's to know who you are and to be okay with it. And and Jesus was humble. And that's why he was able to do what he did. Remember what Jesus did on the last night of his life before he died for sin? He washed the disciples' feet. Why was he able to do this? Look at this text. This is powerful. This is John chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. Look at why Jesus was able to wash those dirty disciples' feet. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Do you see that? He knew who he was. He he knew why he was there. He knew what his life was about. He had a clear sense of his identity and his purpose. And that created a fearlessness. So knowing who he was in this confidence he was fearless he rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied it around his waist then he poured water into a basin began to wash the disciples feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him friends that's 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 being fearless it it takes that kind of fearlessness to say i'm just going to be who i am I'm just going to take advantage of an opportunity to serve. I'm I'm just going to let you look down on me if you want to. See, Jesus was vulnerable. He allowed people to see him as he was. Jesus was generous. He was always and is always willing to meet needs. He's confident. He knows who he is. He's the king. He's the Messiah who saves. Now that day in Jerusalem... The people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were crying out, here he is, here's the king. And they received him by faith. Now I wonder, how about you? This prophecy was made 500 years before Jesus came. The promise was made, the promise was kept. Do you care? Does it matter to you? See, the people that day, they believed in Jesus. They trusted in him. They worshiped him. Is that your heart's desire? Or are you too caught up in the things of earth that are going to grow strangely dim? Friends, turn your eyes to Jesus today. Some of you to be saved, some of you to be revived. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. You are so powerful. You have done exactly what you said you would do, that you would crush the head of Satan. I cannot wait to celebrate your resurrection next week. And as we enter into Holy Week and are mindful of who you are and what you've come to do, I pray today for some who've never received you, who've never acknowledged you as the king of their life, They've never repented of their self-sufficiency. They've never said, Lord, I don't want to depend on me. I want to trust in you. And I pray that some would begin to do that right now. That they would right now in their hearts tell you that they believe that you, Jesus, are the king. That you died to pay for their sin. That you've been 
raised and you're now alive and you can live in them and that they would invite you into their heart right now, into their life right now to, to be the leader of their life and the savior, the one who forgives their sin and that they would soon be baptized to celebrate that. Father, I pray for many of, of your people who have been saved by the mercy that you have poured out. But Lord, if we're honest, we're distracted. Our minds are not on the things of the kingdom of God. Our minds are focused on earthly things that will not last and we are being unwise. God, help us to be wise. Would you right now, Christian, would you right now ask for wisdom? Ask God to give you the wisdom to focus on Jesus, to make Jesus number one in every aspect of your life so that you can be fearless, so you can be humble, so you can be the recipient of the joy that he alone can give. You're a good and great God, and we love you. And Lord Jesus, we begin this holy week celebrating your triumphal entry. And we ask that you would help us all week this week to remain focused on the finished work that you came and did. Make us those who tell of it. Make us those this week who talk about the resurrection, who talk about your atoning death, who talk about your coming into the world with a happiness and a hope that compels others to believe. God, make us faithful to invite and to bring with us people to worship you next week for Easter. Lord, bring victory to the souls of those who are dead and bring them life and hope. And use us to, to bring them to you so that you can do that. We ask that you would allow us the joy of that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.